today I'm talking to Mark Orr, who's the founder of Lab Records. And just before we started recording, you were telling me about how you saw it as a bit of a labour of love, because it wasn't something you started to earn loads of money. It was something that you did just from uh, passion for music. Um, could you tell me what it was like in the early days of Lab Records? Yeah, of course. Uh, you know, you definitely start it as just being really into music and unfortunately not being blessed with uh, that natural talent or patience, you know, to be able to sing or play guitar uh, like many of my friends were. And so, you know, you scratch your head and, and, and wonder how you can be involved. And it started out by putting on shows in, in, you know, where I was brought up in Blackpool. There was plenty of opportunities and, and there wasn't much of a scene for, for the sort of music that me and my friends listened to. You know, there was punk, there was a punk scene. This was sort of 2006, 2007. There was a bit of a scar scene, but uh, yeah, you know, not much for kind of the, I suppose, indie guitar music that, that we were into. So that was just an opportunity to kind of be around creatives, be around artists without, um, yeah, having this kind of ability or be able to, to operate on their level when it came to musicianship or, or that type of thing. Uh, and, and that was how, you know, I first got involved in music and through that met a lot of artists who, uh, you know, were perhaps without management or just been dropped by their label and, and you know, initially really just started with they needed some help pressing CDs, they needed some help pressing vinyl, they, you know, literally couldn't afford to, uh, you know, press 500 CDs to take on tour and, and the label was born quite by accident out of that. In those early days, we were working, um, ironically, a lot of acts from down south, despite the fact I was up in, in Blackpool. Uh, we were working um, a singer-songwriter called Rob Lynch, who went on and released uh, uh, music through Extra Mile and, and different stuff, and, and also a couple of bands from Brighton. Um, one was called The Auteur, one was called Mimi Sawyer. Um, and yeah, that was kind of, it was built out of that, through that kind of our first label tours happened uh, I guess through kind of 2008 2009 and it really couldn't have been more DIY it was a case of you know finding like-minded artists in in certain cities and towns and and they would come to Blackpool and we would in turn go to their town and you ended up in some weird and wonderful places you know not an exaggeration to say towns that you've never heard of uh, uh despite you know being brought up and and being born in the UK and uh, uh but but you know it was exciting it was great to kind of rock up in these new places and and of course the bar was relatively low if if you know there was 80 kids there or if there was god 150 it was the best thing in the world you know it was really exciting i think that's something that's missing from music now is that scenes aren't so much a thing anymore it's definitely more that you know people are listening to music from all over the globe because it's so easy to do that but uh the energy of like a local scene i think isn't as easily found nowadays do you think there's like a, a lab record sound? Did you feel like you were putting out the music from one scene? Yeah, it's interesting you say. I, I think that's exactly it. When, you know, going back to those kind of early days when we were putting on shows in Blackpool, you know, quite hot artists, you know, acts that were kind of perhaps had record deals or whatever would come and, and I couldn't believe how excited they were, uh, you know, to play in front of, it might have only been 120 people, but it was in Blackpool, a place they probably never thought that they would, that they 
they would play uh, or, or, you know, certainly wasn't high on their list of places to play. And so that was kind of why I got the book was was that, you know, that people would be genuinely excited to come out and play these shows, despite the fact we saw them as being so cool. And, you know, perhaps they were hyped in London or in Manchester or whatever. Um, but in terms of the sound, I mean, I guess that's changed a lot over, over you know, 11 or 12 years at that stage going right back. Yeah, I would say, you know, we were we were very much kind of a consistent came out of that guitar space i suppose i was i grew up with um you know emo and post-punk and all these kind of uh, genre terms that perhaps make people cringe at this point um but uh, through the years as time has gone on i guess we've become more known for being quite eclectic um you know i suppose the heritage comes through guitar music still but we work a lot of singer-songwriters and left pop and you know streaming's enabled us to to broaden our horizons and we've never really wanted to be tied down I think to um, one genre look sometimes I look over at my pals who, who you know run punk labels or whatever and, and I'm a bit jealous because uh, you know they, they have a, a stable of acts who can all tour together and, and they understand the process for each one but there's still something exciting about being able to sign anything that you want, you know, if it's a singer songwriter or if it's a band or if it's, you know, a young uh, kind of pop artist, whatever, if it's, if it's good enough, if, if we're all kind of into it, uh, we can, we can work it. And that's an exciting thing. Yeah. I guess that you get thousands of demos sent to you and I was thinking it must be pretty difficult to choose from them. And I was just wondering what you sort of look for. What's your criteria now? If you've got such a eclectic load of artists on your label, what makes something stand out to you when you're listening to a demo? It's a good question. I think, you know, increasingly you're right I think any label the amount of kind of cold uh, uh, calling sort of unsolicited that that number is is quite high and, and probably unmanageably high we definitely we kind of bravely took this decision or, or kind of uh, naively took the decision a few years ago that we would put out on social media that we were going to respond to every demo you know everybody who sends us stuff we will respond we thought we, you know we would be trailblazers uh, and, and within about two weeks realized that this was just completely unmanageable because of course <laughs> the second you respond you get a, a you know a third fourth fifth email back and and if that is happening over hundreds or thousands of threads you know, it becomes more than a full-time job at that stage so we we set out with the best intentions that we were going to have these conversations with young artists and stuff um but unfortunately quickly realized why no one else was doing this um and right. uh uh, so in terms of what stands out, I mean, look, of course, we get, you know, at this stage, having been doing this for a while, um, we have certain managers or lawyers or people within the industry that we trust and, and perhaps we've worked with before. Um, so, you know, occasionally they'll be tipping us on stuff. But in terms of, of emails we receive, I think the biggest go to for new artists when we're talking to to new artists is um just keep it succinct you know really we are talking about if you if you're looking to pique someone's interest you can do that with one or two songs you know i think what turns a lot of industry people off are very very long emails many many paragraphs tons of attachments you know it really less is more you kind of can't stress that enough uh, and and understand who you're pitching to you know if you're pitching to us 
you know, don't be a, a kind of Norwegian metal act or, or a jazz act, you know, understand your audience, understand. And, and if you want to kind of get their attention, then look, without sounding um, uh, egotistical or whatever, what, what I suppose feeds people's egos a little bit or, you know, what will get people's attention is talk about an artist from that label or from that management company that you're pitching to why you're into them you know what i mean and and that's just gonna i think increase your chances of um just having someone listen to the soundcloud link which is really your end goal you know if you can get them to to you know give you 60 seconds to listen to to one of your songs that's kind of a win uh and hopefully from there your music uh, uh you know does the rest When you were talking about emailing people back every time, you uh, would that sort of tease them into thinking they had your interests or was it more of a feedback thing that you were offering them? Yeah, it's a bit of both, really. I suppose because very few labels do respond, apart from maybe the old school kind of stock response letter from a major record label that you see, you know, on occasion, um, uh, I think the very fact that we were responding to everyone personally probably did give you know potentially a little bit of false hope um you know because i guess a lot of these people were getting zero response from from you know i'm not going to suggest for a second we were the only label they were contacting uh, i'm sure they were contacting many labels but um uh, so so yeah the fact that we responded uh, yeah we, we kind of sold it as or talked about it as a kind of me- a feedback mechanism and kind of get the conversation started and going back to this DIY I think we talked about you know from from our our beginnings um, but yes unfortunately what we hadn't factored in is that not only do, do does that make people respond once within 24 hours of that first response they'll chase up again uh, you know and it just became this never-ending cycle and and you know the soon as you got through the 100 emails there was another 150 waiting for you (laughs) sounds like a nightmare (laughs) as you're the founder of the label you're sort of halfway split between being the A&R guy and also the head of the business um so I was kind of wondering, like the stereotype with like major labels is that they get everything through and they only, you know, they never take a risk. And there's like loads of stories in history of artists making incredible albums, but the label thinks it's too weird or something. So they don't put any money behind it. But I was just wondering with a label like yours, where it's a passion project and you're personally influencing the decisions, can you make a decision based far more on music than you can on money? Or do you still have to take that decision very seriously yeah good question I I think you know unfortunately there there always has to be a financial aspect you know for by virtue of the fact the label's been been in existence for sort of 10 or or 11 years or whatever at this point um seriously you, you have to yeah have one eye on the bottom line and make sure you're not betting the ranch on on a particular project no matter how much you love it so it's definitely about separating head and heart in that way but yes i would certainly think our thought process is vastly different to uh, certainly a major record label and probably um you know large indies as well in the sense that we get less involved in the kind of um you know strict a and r um we certainly we can offer our two cents and and perhaps have you know uh, this little bit of experience that our young artists who, who are coming through who may only be 18 or 19 and recording for the first time 
um, you know, we can hopefully lend a bit of advice there, but we certainly wouldn't be the type of A&R or, or label process that would be in the studio, um, you know, directing traffic and, and kind of saying, oh, you should do this or you should do that. I think that's why an indie is attractive to a lot of artists is that they let them uh, be in the creative process and let them make the record they want to make uh, for the most part within reason and um, at that stage that's handed over to us to become the marketing process or, or you know hopefully amplify that and get it to as wide an audience as, as it possibly can. So you're definitely encouraging people to do what they want to rather than being a one of those Hollywood record label executives who's saying yeah, we need something with a big chorus and you need to sort your haircut out and that's what we're expecting from you. Otherwise, you're off the label. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, uh, we, we don't have those six figure budgets that perhaps allow you to make those sweeping statements about haircuts or fashion choices or whatever. Uh, and, and also, yeah, that's the process, I think the fact that we've wanted to get into business with the artist, the fact we've signed the artist in the first place uh, shows that we're into what they do um, and, and you know, we're going to let them be creatively, uh, you know, for, for the absolute most part. On Who's Flying the Plane, we like to give the chance for our guests to point us in the way of a hidden gem. This could be something from your label, actually, where you just think it deserves a bit more attention, something that you'd like to point us in the direction of so we can experience it, something that needs a bit more of an audience. Sure, yeah. It's like, well, that's like picking your favourite child. Um, so we're uh, 200 releases deep at this point, and, and there are definitely... Uh, a good number, probably at least a dozen in there that, you know, we would feel definitely underperformed or, or should have done better than it did. The one that comes immediately to mind is quite an old record now as a 2010 record and by an American band um, called The Morning Of. Uh, it was a record that probably certainly at that stage would have been the most expensive record we'd ever been involved with. It was produced by a guy called Jim Wirt, who'd done incubus and a ton of different stuff at that stage uh, was was kind of a high level producer and and yeah i just think that this uh, the the album's called the way i fell in it's still on spotify and all that different stuff and and at the time felt like a real kind of moment for our label and, and, and elevated us to another level in terms of you know a good level us release so should certainly have done better than it did i think it's still i haven't listened to it probably for a a year or so but certainly the last time I listened to it it very much stood the test of time considering it's yeah 10 years old at this point um, and production has changed a hell of a lot in, in 10 years um, but yeah that's one that immediately comes to mind when people say about you know hidden gems or stuff that didn't you know perhaps meet its potential and and all the members of those of, of that band have gone on and done different things predominantly in music and, and had success post the band um, but yeah that's always the record that comes to mind just because it was probably our biggest record to that to that point certainly our most expensive record to that point um, and so yeah that's that's one that it might be good for people to, <laughs> to check out uh, because I'm sure there's a ton of people who would love it who certainly haven't heard it have you got in the way of new releases coming up soon that we should watch out for yeah 100 percent. again like like picking one's uh one's one's favorite child uh yeah so at the moment uh, kind of coming through in the next 
sort of three months, we just started working with a band from Glasgow called Dead Pony, who um, are really releasing their first single uh, to all intents and purposes uh, a week on Friday, which is a great record and, and something which is we're really excited to develop and get involved with um we have some new uh Kwasa music coming through which is an artist that was signed to our label and uh then went on signed to to warner uh music and now is back with us and and it, that's really exciting to kind of get the teeth into to that music again that's kind of coming through and yeah uh, that those are uh, kind of what's on there. We have a Ferris and Sylvester record, actually, as I think about it, uh, which is which is coming out in in a few weeks, which literally just landed on my desk um, last week because it was something they'd written during lockdown and was about kind of you know being unable to do all these things that you've got used so used to doing in life. So that's a really interesting one as well. Um, that's that's going to com- be coming out in the next couple of weeks. Great. So how can we find uh, Lab Records music and social media and all that kind of thing? So we're just Lab Records, as in L-A-B records on on basically all social media. And in terms of the website, it's labrecs.com because the scientist who's owned labrecords.com for about 15 years uh, refuses to sell it to us. But that's another story. Right. <laughs> uh, that's another story. Uh, uh, but yeah, so it's labrecs.com. Great stuff. Um, but yeah, Mark, thanks a lot for talking to me. Thanks, Max. Appreciate the time and thanks for having me.